0: Thanks for listening to the IAF's Global Regulatory Update podcast, where we discuss today's pressing topics in financial regulation. I'm Matthew Eckberg with the Regulatory Affairs Department here at the IAF, and it's our pleasure to be joined today by Stephen Scott, founder and CEO of Starling Trust Sciences. Stephen, welcome. It's terrific to have you here. Thanks very much for having me, Matt. Over the course of the podcast, we'll be discussing what is certainly one of the most pressing topics in the minds of the financial services regulatory community globally today, and that's culture and conduct risk. So we at the IF have had a long involvement with these issues over many years, and in particular around how principles for corporate governance practices have been developed at the global level of the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision. However, this form of non-financial risk has certainly evolved and has become ever more important to consider given recent geopolitical concerns. We're most grateful to speak with you, Stephen, about your thinking in this area, and in particular about your work on Sterling Trust's compendium on culture and conduct risk in the banking sector. So I wonder if we could start with you perhaps giving some background for the listeners on your work on conduct and cultural risk, and perhaps a bit of background on the compendium itself, and then we can get deeper into some of the issues it covers.
1: Sure. Well, I'll just say very briefly, um, Starling set out to create AI-enabled tools to do a better job of managing non-financial risk and positioning our customers become proactive in the face of such risks. I want to say it was maybe 2016 timeframe. I was attending the New York Fed's annual culture conference, and I got talking with someone with uh, what was then known as the UK's Banking Standards Board, and we had observed that around the world, regulators more and more regularly were speaking about culture as a matter for supervisory attention. I had said, gee, it would be great if there was one place where we had sort of a compendium of who's saying what in all the different jurisdictions so that we can identify emerging themes that are trending or key points of departure that need resolution. And that led to the start of the compendium as a passion project, as it were. Our first report was launched in 2018 and we just relaunched our fifth report.
0: Thank you, it's a very thorough body of work and it's a terrific to have that out there and you have such a comprehensive view from many interlocutors across the world. You know, obviously, conduct and culture risk in financial services has evolved over time. So I wonder if you could speak a bit further to that evolution and how it's been reflected in the compendium.
1: Yeah, sure. So I think what we first started hearing was regulators saying culture is a thing that matters to them. What that meant in operational terms and practical terms, I think, was a little bit unclear. And there was some pushback from some in industry and from some in the regulatory community arguing that culture, it's too woolly, it's too squishy a concept, doesn't really lend itself to quantitative metrics doesn't lend itself to black letter law, and therefore, you know, maybe not something for regulators to focus on. So there was a little bit of a debate there. That debate is now fully resolved. There is no question that culture is is part of the, the firmament in regulatory circles, supervisory circles. And as you pointed out earlier, culture and the associated conduct risks that culture is said to engender are now firmly viewed as a key corporate governance matter. That creates new responsibilities for folks in the C-suite and and on boards. And particularly in light of some of the trends in recent years towards holding senior managers individually liable or accountable for misconduct that takes place on their watch. I'll just say that there's two other things I think that really emerged from this debate over the last five years. One is if if we care about culture, we care about employee conduct, maybe we ought to look at behavioral science as providing some good ideas as to what management of these issues would entail and in order to operate at scale we've got to make good use of data and and data science and we're starting to see some of that in what uh some have referred to as culture audits Uh, so a number of financial regulators for example i'm thinking here of the australian prudential regulation authority now requires firms to conduct an annual culture audit and submit those results to APRA for review. Those are all new developments in the last five years that are taking
0: shape. That's great, and that's all very interesting themes, and I think we'll try to unpack some of those points in a few minutes. But first, you know, before we leave the background discussion, Stephen, what struck me is how you've managed to get such a, a wide variety of important stakeholders to contribute their thinking to the compendium across jurisdictions. So I wonder, how have jurisdictional considerations impacted the themes across the project? And did you find broad homogeneity on key issues across the interlocutors that you spoke with globally? First, let me just say that
1: we feel really privileged that so many senior figures in the industry uh, entrust us to help capture this global dialogue. And it is just that. It's become a global dialogue. It's not so much um, a collection of jurisdictional monologues. The different bank regulators and supervisors are closely engaged in knowledge sharing, uh, knowledge sharing among one another on these topics. That's creating a more coherent and consistent set of supervisory expectations. And then we're seeing that consistently across borders. Culture and conduct risk is, I, th- I think fair to say, viewed today as a systemic concern. I believe it was 2015 when Mark Carney was at the Bank of England and chair of the Financial Stability Board made the observation that the amount of monies that had been uh, issued in punitive fines from the banking sector, at the time it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 350 million US dollars, that would have supported another 5 trillion in lending to businesses and households. So this, the enormity of these fines was seen to be a systemic risk back in 2015, Today, the, the fines are approaching $800 billion in the global aggregate. So I think that that's a real issue that the, the industry has yet to grapple with successfully.
0: That's very interesting. And I think we can get into some of the issues around uh, systemic risk and around uh, financial integrity a bit more deeply. But um, perhaps we get into some of the issues that you know, personally struck me as interesting in the compendium. So one of the things that came up was personal responsibility. And personal responsibility has taken on an increased regulatory focus. It's been highlighted across. Uh, your compendiums the last couple of years. I wonder if you could discuss how a shift towards predict and prevent, as you put it, in terms of responsibility has come about, and if there are connections we should really consider when our work culture has clearly evolved since the onset of the pandemic. And I think perhaps specifically how work-life balance impacted governance risk more broadly. Well, there's quite a bit to uh,
1: unpack there. Um, Let me start with your last point. When COVID first sort of appeared on the landscape, there was some sense that it would be an interruption and, and we get back to business as usual sometime thereafter. Uh, I don't think anyone really has that view any longer. I think that work from home or, or at least a hybrid workplace is now generally agreed to be what the future is going to look like. One of the implications that stems from that is how does the three lines of defense model for managing non-financial risks in particular, how does that 3LOD function in a hybrid work context. Most of the risk management systems and processes that financial institutions have erected in the last decades uh, really are premised on the idea that people are working within the four walls of a building. We're working consistently across uh, company-sanctioned communications tools. What we're seeing is that people are working from their kitchen and they're using their, their own personal devices. and. Uh, that's leading to a challenge in capturing relevant data. So I think the COVID pandemic and the subsequent changes that it's ushered in are really forcing a rethink around how non-financial risk management is is best conducted. And here again, I don't think that there's been a settled answer to that question, but there's certainly a lot of questioning and and experimentation taking place.
0: Great, no thanks, Stephen. That's all very interesting. Talking a little bit about the changes in relation to the pandemic. I wonder how that's also impacted personal accountability and how the compendium has found issues evolving around that.
1: Thanks, I think it's muddied what is already a fairly muddy landscape. Um, The idea of personal accountability is somewhat unevenly applied. In fact, I think uh, I have my data right here that since uh, late March of this year, uh, the UK Financial Conduct Authority, which was a prime mover in creating the senior manager's regime, uh, they'd only opened about 47 investigations, looking to hold senior management accountable. And to my knowledge, there have been very, very few prosecutions. So there's a question as to whether or not these individual accountability regimes are effective. Um, are they sort of a paper tiger? And then the other thing that I think is muddying things here is that many regulators talk about culture and conduct issues as being subject to principles. Of, of good conduct that they look for, uh, as opposed to specific rules. So is culture and conduct an issue that should be addressed through rules or principles? I think the jury's out on that one. And as a consequence, I think that we're not yet sure what best practices ought to look like. Um, I think this is perhaps an area where the Basel Committee may need to get involved and um, you know think through how all of this features in its approach to operational risk
0: now that's very interesting and i think it also relates to your discussion on the three lines of defense and certainly some of the other issues that come up in the compendium and one thing's at all one thing that also struck me was tone from the top and that's really a key component of the basel committee's corporate governance principles for banks uh, which i mentioned at the beginning and and obviously you've alluded to Uh, Though i was struck in the compendium findings over the years pointed out that perhaps it's of limited value so I wonder if you could elaborate on that a bit more and discuss a bit more whether this and other areas, as you've stated, of the Basel Principles might benefit from a, a real reexamination going forward.
1: Well, look, Bertz, I'll make the observation that our compendium last year had closing comments from Carolyn Rogers, who at the time was the Secretary General of the Basel Committee, uh, and this year we were pleased to have had closing comments offered by Klaus Knot, who uh, is, of course, President of the Dutch Central Bank and currently chairs the Financial Stability Board. So the topic of culture and conduct is clearly on the radar for folks in Basel.
0: That's very interesting. I think some of the issues you've also discussed in terms of um, the three lines of defense and also other issues covered in the compendium like tone from the top are something that we could perhaps get into a bit more deeply as they're really key components of the Basel Committee's corporate governance principles for banks, um, which I mentioned at the beginning and, and you've alluded to. And I was struck in the compendium findings that over the years it's pointed to Uh, Tone at the top, for example, being perhaps of limited value. So I wonder if you could perhaps elaborate a bit further on that and also discuss this and other areas where the Basel Principles might benefit from further re-examination.
1: Sure. Well, look, to answer the tone from the top question, let me be a little bit blunt and provocative. There's been an emphasis not just among regulators, but also within firms and boards that setting the right tone from the top is critical to shaping the behavior of organizations. And what I just point out is that we have seen a sequence of misconduct failures for the last you know, decades, or at least since the financial crisis, despite this focus on tone from the top. I personally don't think tone from the top really drives behavior the way it is perceived to uh, by those who, who place emphasis on tone from the top as a management method. It's probably good hygiene. But it reflects the idea, you know, the old adage that the fish rots from the head. Um, and there's a belief that there's sort of a command and control process in place and the people at the top sort of set direction and everyone else follows. Behavioral science suggests something else altogether. Behavioral science shows that behavior is really a bottom-up phenomenon. We, we watch what our peers do and by and large, we mimic what we see our peers doing. I think there's some recognition of that these days. The Monetary Authority of Singapore, for example, made the clever quip that tone from the top is less important than the echo from the bottom. Bill Cohn, who was secretary general of the Basel Committee, offers some related thoughts on our compendium this year, where he talks about the various crises he'd witnessed during his time in Basel. There was a certain complacency that sort of reared its head over and over again. People think that if they set the right tone from the top, that things should go according to plan, and, and yet they don't. Uh, and so we put in ever more surveillance and monitoring, we increase the number of compliance officers, we increase the number of hours of online ethics training that we expect staff to complete, and, and none of that has had real demonstrable effect in, in solving this problem. So I think that the industry's regulators are going through a rethink currently as to if tone from the Top isn't where we should focus, then then, where ought we to focus and what does that mean in practical terms?
0: Indeed, that's very interesting. Certainly, there's space to watch in terms of what the committee might be doing going forward with that as well. Lastly, Stephen, I wonder if we can talk a little bit about some of the other issues covered in the compendium. Financial stability and financial integrity, we talked a bit about that at the beginning, are also core issues for the Basel Committee and you know, indeed the other international standard setting bodies. You make a very interesting point in the most recent compendium that the sanctions regime put in place concerning the Russia-Ukraine conflict really puts the role of the financial system and the role that plays in national security affairs in sharper focus. So I wonder if you could give us your thoughts on how this may impact all the areas of conduct and culture risk outlined by the compendium by driving integrity issues really higher up the policy agenda.
1: So my personal view here is that it has two effects that are somewhat paradoxical. Um, Right now, the focus on the sanctions regime is uh, sucking a lot of the ox- oxygen out of the tent. People are really focused on uh, sort of immediate steps in order to uh, keep on the right side of the sanctions regime. There's a lot of focus on know your customer and uh, AML. And that sort of pushed the culture and conduct risk issue just sort of off center stage a little bit. I, I don't expect it will remain there because, of course, if organizations are subject to misconduct that contravene the sanctions regime, then I think we're gonna see a quick return to the culture of conduct agenda, but here in connection with national security interests. That was one of the points that came out of this year's compendium with contributions from a number of people who've served in the military and have worked on Wall Street, you know, all sort of saying uh, the same thing, that bank integrity and banking system integrity is today perhaps considered a national security interest.
0: I wonder if you could also just comment on whether you think that the financial services sector can really manage the issues that are currently out there uh, using the existing governance risk and compliance architectures, or should there be a, a fundamental rethink in certain areas?
1: Well, first, let me offer the caveat that I'm running a business that tries to create new tools in this space, so I'm clearly biased in the direction of something new and different. I think the traditional tools, even before the Russia-Ukraine crisis, um, they had shown themselves to be, again, perhaps good hygiene, but largely ineffective or at best, retroactive. Now We've talked about this at Starling as being a detect and correct mindset, right? We have surveillance and monitoring systems. We detect signal that indicates that something may have gone awry. We go and inspect that, and if we find that indeed there's trouble, We take corrective measures as a standard of care in aviation or in nuclear power. That's just not good enough. Um, We don't want an alarm to go off after there's a meltdown. We want an alarm to go off before there's a meltdown, so that we can take steps to make sure that the meltdown doesn't occur. Right, and so we talk about that as the predict and prevent approach. And I think that that's the approach that we'll see evolve near term and achieving that in the banking sector will require a change in, in thinking around what good management looks like and the dialogue that we curate through the compendium uh, very much reflects that and reflects the, the forward-looking direction in that space
0: well thanks Stephen. i think that's extremely important i think what you've raised here today and through the compendium is a real focus on the evolution of these issues you know the real importance of addressing these types of non-financial risks in a, a comprehensive fashion And certainly a global dialogue uh, like that's been built out of the compendium and what could go forward on these issues, I think is indeed something of very much interest of our members. And I'm sure the regulatory community would also value that. So terrific food for thought and and a way forward here as well. I'd note that if you're interested in reviewing the compendium further, please go to starlingtrust.com forward slash the dash starling dash compendium. So it's been wonderful and a very interesting discussion. Thanks, Stephen, so much for joining us here. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Thanks, Matt. And if I can just insert one closing comment here, a key takeaway I think that I would emphasize is that we really do need a global dialogue between firms, regulators, international standard setters, and technologists to help define and shape what best practices ought to be going forward and to agree to practical implementation protocols for risk management in that space. We're launching a new web-based platform to carry on a relevant dialogue. We'll call it Starling Insights. We've already had a number of regulators and industry standard centers show interest in carrying on the dialogue there. So hopefully what we've done in the compendium on an annual basis can become more of a real-time conversation. And we certainly hope
0: that the IIF and its members will participate. Thanks, Stephen. That sounds terrific. And we look forward to hearing next steps around that as well. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. For more episodes of our Regulatory Affairs podcast, please find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and on Spotify. Thank you very much.